The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. And the Oscar goes to... Robin Williams. Daniel Day-Lewis. Quentin Tarantino. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Billy Bob Thornton. The English patient. Shakespeare in love. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. Welcome to part two of our look at the business of film. In this episode, we will break down the 1990s with a look at the rise of independent film. I am once again joined by writer-director Phil Giovanno, whose latest movie, The Veil, starring Thomas Jane and Jessica Alba, is currently streaming on Netflix. Let's talk about your film, You Two Rattle and Hum, mm-hmm. if we could for a moment. Sure. Because that was not a studio-financed film. That was a movie that the band paid for. Mm-hmm. So you, you made the film. Once it's finished, what did you do? How did you get that? you know, in front of studios? Like, wh- yeah, how did well, that process work? Really, what what happened there and what would happen with anyone who would, would kind of, whether it was self-finance or get outside financing, is, yeah, the band wrote a check for $5 million and we went and shot the, the film and I had cut together, I was also the editor on the movie, so I had cut together, you know, a fairly good portion of the film, a lot of the concert footage. You know, it was funny, Paramount pursued us, you know, and, and again, I mean, they were as hot as you could be at that time. And they were the, you know, hottest ticket in rock and roll. So everyone knew we were making the movie in town and everyone, you know, was, you know, obviously aware of what was going on with you too. And then they had promoted it. I mean, they had let it be known that they were, they were looking uh, for, for a partner to release it. And Paramount contacted my agents. And then I just took the, some footage over there all, all by myself. I just brought a, brought a three quarter inch tape over to Paramount and showed it to now in this case because remember they're just going to pick it up and market it. I showed it to the heads of marketing and distribution. So because the the creative head of the studio, you know, the movie the movie was already in production or, or virtually done. So um, showed it to them and they made an offer then and there. They so that was easy considering the cost of the film being being fair low by studio standards and you know kind of the. Uh, height of the band's popularity, or at least their initial popularity. So that was, you know, obviously a fairly easy one. But back then, again, it was it was not that different <clears throat> than you know the neg- what they call the negative pickup um, that you have today, which is you make a film, you you screen the film around town, and you hope and pray somebody might buy it. The more typical way now that you get a film notice when it doesn't have distribution is through the film festival system that's that's really kind of the best way particularly sundance to get your film noticed by a studio for distribution but you know you can still you can still if if you have the right connections which usually means major you know representation pushing a studio to take a look at your movie but you know that that's really how you did it then, and and honestly, that part of it hasn't changed that much. You still, if 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 you and I went and made a movie for five hundred thousand dollars, and and we could get them to watch it, someone might pick it up. You know, whether it's a small distributor or a big one, even better if we could get it into Sundance. Let me ask you this: This question is sort of just came up now. Is film stock expensive? Was it expensive? 
fil- like the actual film they use to to make these movies? And, and there's a question here for, after you answer this. Um, no, no, not in relationship to the budget. Absolutely not. Okay. In fact, as a percentage of the budget, and I think I even made this joke in Rattle and Humps. Uh, I think uh, Edge asked me, "Is film expensive?" And I said, "No, cheapest thing." And because in relationship to your budget, film and, and processing were not a big deal. It was, it, you know, uh, it was it was relatively inexpensive. You know, it was. of your budget, you know, something very small. But what happens is it's all the things in post-production that you have to do with film that add cost. Okay. So if you're, if you're talking about in relationship, kind of the digital age we're in now, it is much cheaper, it is much faster, and it is much easier to take your film through post digitally. And part of the question I I had with it is the film expensive because there was it seems like today, and we're going to touch on that when we sort of bring ourselves to to the modern times right now. But it seems like uh, it's very easy, like you just mentioned, it's much easier to to actually film a movie with digital technology and, and post and all that. So my question is, there must have been fewer independent films being made in in the eighties. Uh, I mean, it's it was still a risky venture, uh, would you say? Or yeah, I would. Again, I don't have the statistics, but my guess would be absolutely because. What you needed to do to shoot and post a movie physically and and the equipment you needed, like all the stuff you needed to rent and all the stuff you needed to buy and all the stuff, you know, it it just added up. You know, it made it real. That's why, you know, even in 16 mil, it's still, you know, it's slightly cheaper, but not really. Um, When you get right down to it, not that much cheaper. So you were kind of stuck with those hard costs. Whereas now people are making movies on iPhones and, and they can post-produce them in their bedroom if they want to. Seriously. And by the way, at a, at, a, at a really, I mean, the software that they use on Star Wars can be used in your home, say, in terms of sound design. It's, it's, it's the software is available. So, you, you know, whereas, you know, you would have needed millions of dollars to have, you know, access to the Star Wars equipment back in the 80s. You know, and and that's so you're in a very, you know, financially speaking, your ability to make independent films now is just wildly different. So in the 1980s, like we talked about late 80s, independent film was a risky venture. It was even even because there was there was costs associated with it. What changed? And this is how I want to sort of segue into the 1990s. What changed and what brought on the explosion of independent films. I'm just wondering where you saw the massive change. I think what happened was, uh, from my perspective, is you had, like we said, you you had these movies that were averaging 28, 30, $32 million out of studios. And you had to spend, you know, another 20, 30 million to market them. So, you know, you had, you were, you were investing around $60 million for your average studio movie once you hit 1990. Someone came along and said, so like a guy like Steven Soderbergh comes along and says, well, if I make a movie, you know, for a million or two and or less and Miramax comes along and says, yeah, and if we then market that movie on a platform release, which really wasn't something anyone was doing and try to get publicity and try to get awards and or try to get festival attention and build handcraft a campaign that gets you noticed and hopefully grows the film into a moderate hit. If we did that enough times with enough output, 
we could make money. So it's kind of low cost, high volume is what happened. So just like any industry, when someone figures out how to make something cheaper, but you're making less money on it, the way to grow is to make more of them. So what happens? You need more and more independent product. You need more and more inexpensive product because the key is that they're inexpensive. And that to this very day, not not to, to jump into this story, is the exact same business model that Blumhouse has on their horror films. Keep the cost below $4 million no matter what. Make a ton of them. When I left the company, they were making 20 movies in production or post. And then, hey, if only two or three of them hit, you're fine. All the rest are so cheap, they're paid for. And it's the same theory, honestly, with that Miramax kind of made popular or the same philosophy that Miramax made popular back in the 90s. You know, they, they started in the late 80s and exploded in the 90s. Miramax Films. Isn't it remarkable how those two little words can quicken the heart? With a legacy of over 200 Academy Award nominations. Notice will be posted. I love you beyond poetry. You can't admit the truth to me or to yourself. I know what you think, but I let him get away with everything! awaken the passion. You've obviously never met my husband. You love words, don't you? One doesn't have words. How does one think? I don't believe in words in the past. No? Then what are we doing here? Making a future. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. You can do anything you want. You are bound by nothing. Are you interested? <laughs> mm-hmm. Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. How do you convince a, a big-name actor to come on board one of these independent films and take a, a substantial pay cut? I mean, I'm looking, I'm thinking Reservoir Dogs for a moment with, with some of the sure. actors in there. I'm thinking Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. I'm thinking some of these smaller independent films. I imagine everybody, you need people that know what they're doing behind the scenes, uh, you know, in, in front of the camera, behind the scenes. And I imagine that at some point you have to ask these people to take less money. And, and that may have – how did that work? How did that shift sort of happen? I mean, you, I imagine it must have taken some convincing. I, well, I think what happened, what happened like always, you know, is, is actors are always looking to do interesting characters and quality films. And that has never changed. That still exists today. It's just that there's way fewer films for them to do that in. You know, this is why you find such great actors doing comic book movies because what else, there's not that much else for them to get paid. You can always attract talent with great material and you can always attract talent with great characters. So again, and I think it still is kind of the, the impression one gets now. I mean, you look at the Independent Spirit Awards now, they, they're as star-studded as the Oscars, right? I mean, it's just it's the exact same people are at the Independent Spirits Award and the next day they're at the Oscars. They're just dressed in different clothing. You know, right? It, it, it's you know they're in indie they're in indie outfits on Saturday and they're in Oscar outfits on Sunday. It's I part mean, of the award ceremony. I mean, circuit. It's the, it's the same. Yeah, it's just the same award show. It's just not televised on ABC. You know, it really it, what they did. What was so smart was they said, "Look, we're going to work with quality directors, quality writers, and quality act and, and attract quality actors." But everyone's going to have to work cheap because guess what? It's that or go make. You know, go make a big studio action adventure movie, which um, and, and it's true. I mean, in all fairness, the studios in the 90s were still interested in making more serious uh, dramatic films. The drama was still, an, you know, was still a real thing. 
uh, for studios back then. Just, you know, it, it just was lessening and lessening and lessening over time because they saw they could make more money with, you know, big the big genres, you know, and the obvious big action, you know, special effects. And particularly remember, special effects grew. This was another thing that really changed how studios have looked at entertainment, obviously. I mean, you just can see that by the absolute proliferation of CG driven movies and, and, and CG animation, you know, CG animation, you just think about it. I mean, again, in this time you had, you know, technology, computer generated technology, really changing filmmaking and and stories you could tell. So as the technology grew and you could suddenly tell these, these crazy, anyone could now with a, you know, computer in the right effects house, tell a star Wars story. Whereas when George started out, he was the only one, and Steven was the only one. There weren't that many guys. Jim Cameron was the only one. Like they did, there weren't that many guys who could utilize that that technology and get it done. It tripped up a lot of people. A lot of good filmmakers got tripped up in the effects world. But once it became, hey, you can go hire ILM, and anyone can have Steven Spielberg effects or George Lucas effects. That changed. So that you know, so you, so you always were able to, and still to this day, you're able to attract top talent for less money. It's just that um, it's harder and harder. Why? Because I'm going to circle this back around because there's a chance the movie might not get any attention at all and might end up in, in kind of the VOD world or the Netflix world or even, um, you know, some very small release world because you, you, they no longer are forced to give it the theatrical push they used to. Now, in the early 90s, getting a big star attached to your independent film could only help with getting the distribution, correct? I mean, with getting it in front of, getting it into the film festivals, it's, hey, Emma Thompson's in this film. We've got to give this one a look. There's really really kind of, when when people talk about independent film, there's really two kinds of independent film. It's kind of a, a strange label. So first of all, you have independent film, meaning you truly go make the movie with whatever money you can find, you know, whether it's, you know, a group of dentists or whether it's, you know, a hedge fund, whoever is giving you the money, you get the money outside the system. That's legitimately independent filmmaking. A true definition right there. A true definition. That means you and me go to our bank account, go to our credit card, as many a famous story, you know, uh, the Robert, you know, Rodriguez's of the world. I use my credit card, you know, the El Mariachi story, right? That's, you know, so... That's independent. That's, I have no support whatsoever. I just made a movie and let's see what happens. And then by hook or by crook, someone notices it or they don't. The other thing is kind of independent filmmaking that we often talk about are, let's call it Miramax movies. So they call that independent filmmaking, meaning it's outside the big six. It's outside Paramount, Disney, Warner, Sony, etc. So you're outside that system. You're with smaller budgets. You're, you're with, you don't have major distribution. You may not have any distribution at all. So, you know, a lot of these companies, um, as they started out, didn't have their, their own distribution. Or if they did, it was very small, very limited. They couldn't go out in 2,000 screens even if they wanted to. So that's kind of the second version of independent filmmaking. Most of what people talk about in terms of independent filmmaking, when you talk about attracting names are the Miramax side of independent filmmaking are where, yeah, it's independent, but everyone knew Miramax had released my left foot. Everyone knew, you know, like, so you go and see, you're an actor and you go see my left foot and you watch Dan Day Lewis and he wins the Oscar. You're like, Oh my God. I mean, next time 
They say, oh, I've got a script for you. Uh, hey, John Travolta, I've got a script for you. It's from the guys that did My Left Foot. He's like, cool. You know, so right away, they have respect for the company. They say, well, you know, it's called Pulp Fiction. It's from the guy that did Reservoir Dogs. Oh, oh, wow. I, oh, I love Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah, but here's the thing, John. Everyone's working for scale. He's like, give me the script. I think it all started at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, that's when I started to feel the difference of, of the future, what it could be. Right. And uh, when, after the, the film Pulp Fiction got the Palme d'Or, I knew that things were going to change. And by the end of the summer, that was in... Uh, April, 1994. For April. Yeah. Oh, no, May. May. By September, everything had changed for me. You know, uh, more interesting offers, better quality, better, uh, more, uh, more of them. Right. You know, and, right. uh, including Get Shorty. Right. And uh, I was on my road to a new uh, career. You know, you, you cut because, again, it was all... They'd broken through already. They'd already broken through... With, with, you could say, oh, look, I mean, I'm just looking right here I'm on the internet. Like, they made the grifters. You know what I mean? They had made, um, oh, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, uh, you know, they'd released The Double Life of Veronique. They'd made, you know, they'd done Sex Lies and Videotape. They'd done My Left Foot. You know, it was easy to kind of sell an actor on the classy, intelligent form of filmmaking that, that, that really, and again, I'm going to reference Miramax here, they're the easiest, and they were really the, the groundbreakers. Um, in the in the in the other tier of the independent world, not not the hey, I just made a movie. Let's see what happens. Version now in the Miramax tier of independent, as we're as we're calling it right now, would it be fair to say that another thing that would attract talent to this would be the possibility of an Academy Award nomination? Big time. You know, that's really what they offered too. Was that and, and Harvey and his brother were really smart about saying, look. We are going to push, and if, if you make one of these movies for us and it's great and you're great, you know, the other guys, they'll just, you know, throw it out there and hope they get, you know, some nominations. But really, they're going to be more interested in marketing Jurassic Park. We are going to hammer away at getting you attention and getting you an Academy Award or at the very least a nomination. And they were unbelievably great at it. And they changed the awards system. Harvey Weinstein single-handedly changed the awards system to this day where he was often accused of essentially buying Academy Awards. I mean, you know, people still feel that Shakespeare in Love was completely manufactured by Harvey Weinstein. I mean, it's a really wonderful, fine movie. You know, it's, it's a fun, sweet movie. But the point is, like, best picture? He was brilliant at this. And that then offered another, it was so smart, right? Because no one else was doing it. No other studio, none of the majors were taking the time. They do now. Oh, they do now. And they did then. And, and when they caught up to him and they went, whoa, wait a second. We need to, we're getting beat by this guy. You know, um, they then joined. And then it became, you know, as they, as they often talk about it, you know, it kind of became, you know, a, a, the, a, a war, uh, uh, to win the awards, and well, which was kind of funny, and that that was going to be my my next question is what was well actually there's two there's two questions here because in the 90s we you touched on this a little bit earlier this is where the studio really became the corporation and had to answer to shareholders and then what was the studios the big studios response to the indie film boom and 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 how did they because they they did have a response they came out swinging they did. 
Oh, yes, they did. Well, their response was to create their own divisions or buy them. Because again, they, they said, hey, wait a second, there's, we're leaving some money on the table here. You know, so that was number one, because that's always, you know, like the saying goes, you know, follow the money. You know, again, like everything else, if you follow the money, most of the decision making is money based. So they said, hey, wait a second, there's money to be made. They're making these movies cheap. They're getting quality people to be in them, direct them and write them. So, well, hell, let's us do that. And then we'll put our marketing machine behind it and we can we can beat them at their own game. But they couldn't very well do that underneath their major label. They couldn't say, oh, you know, here at Warner Brothers, uh, some of our movies will pay you nothing and some of our movies will pay you $20 million. Like <laughs> the actor would be like, wait a second, why? So they created their independent divisions, right? And so, you know, that's really where you had uh, these new, it was, it was kind of, I always thought, kind of amusing because you... <laughs> You would say, like, I'm going to go make a, a, a movie for, uh, you know, Paramount Vantage. And it's like, uh, it's still Paramount. I mean, it's going to be owned, marketed, and distributed by Paramount or Focus Features or Warner Independent or uh, Fox Searchlight or Sony Classics. I'm like, it's still Sony. Like, what do you, you know, but th- since they put a label on it, they could pretend... They were doing the Miramax thing. They could say, hey, we're going to do these small indie features and we're going to, but sorry, we don't have any money. Sorry. You know, everyone's going to have to work, work for cheap to do this really, you know, classy, high quality kind of filmmaking here, you know, because it's a, it's a, it's a Sony classics movie. You know, it's just kind of funny. I, I get a kick out of how in most cases there, uh, with the exception of focus feature, the studio still had to have their name in the title of, of that. I mean, it was Paramount it's, Vantage, Fo- Fox Searchlight. I mean, they could they had to have their name in there. It's hysterical. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, look, it's great that they existed for the run they were in because they gave a lot of filmmakers chances to make movies. And, and that's great. So, I mean, I'm always happy where there's more financing and more distribution and more opportunities for filmmakers. And it's great for movies, right? So, on one hand, it's cool that those things had their heyday. But it was kind of funny that I always thought they're just – you're right. It's just so silly that they're like, but but just so you know, we're still Paramount. And and just in case like we win some awards, like God forbid, you know, a Warner Independent film, when we win Best Picture, it's going to be a Warner Independent Best Picture. It's still a – so they couldn't call it something else because they were – they still wanted the credit. You see, the the heads of the studios – and the people that weren't even running those divisions still wanted to make sure that everybody knew that whoever's running Warner Brothers and Warner Independent made it happen. We made it happen. Warner's made it happen because credit is a huge, huge part of Hollywood and getting credit for something that works and and you know the perception that that then creates about you and your company is you know kind of it's gold. So. That that's why they they really it was kind of a, you know kind of a have your cake and eat it too proposition. Well, we're in the '90s for a moment. I'd like to come back to a question I posed when we were talking about the '80s, and that is the average cost of a theatrical release. Now, putting the independent films aside here, I'm talking about the the, the studio films. We had mentioned 28 million in the '80s. Curious to see where that number is at, where the marketing costs have gone at at, at that point in the 1990s. <clears throat> And was marketing still 
pretty much done the same way. You This time you could get the trailers uh, on home video releases, on DVD yeah. releases. So where were we at with theatrical release costs and marketing in the 90s? In the 90s, it got – I mean from what I've, from what I've looked at it, it, it basically went up into, you know, between 50 and $60 million was now your average cost. So say, let's just call it $55 million. So you started at 28, now you're at 55. And your marketing costs have gone up another, you know, up to about 50, 50 or 60. So you're between 100, 110, $115 million, depending upon the movie, out the door. And as you can see, what happens is you take less risk creatively as your costs go up. And that right there is truly what's changed filmmaking. This is really the simple equation. When people wonder how the content and quality of films and kinds of films have changed, say from the 70s to now, it is really simply about cost. Because the higher the cost, and I know this sounds remedial, but it's 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 just this simple. The higher the cost, the less you're going to risk. And that then connects into the sequels and the branding and the, you know, as they call it, IP, intellectual property that have built in, as they call it, awareness. Because it is so ex- becoming in the 90s more and more expensive to reach an audience. You know, by the time we're in 2016, it's ridiculous, right? The numbers are ridiculous. And and so you're just going to take fewer risks and what you do put your money behind <clears throat> has to reach a worldwide audience. In part three of our discussion, we will round out our look at the past 30 years by diving headfirst into the 2000s and beyond. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. First of all, obviously, it's, it's, it's a wonderful good fortune to have when you've got a number of projects out, three, four, five, that are being talked about for Academy Award nominations, and you know you're going to win something somewhere in this process. But how does the guy who runs the company um, go about managing all of this right about now up through March? Well, first half is anybody who thinks they're going to win, you know, is, uh, is you know, um, not accurate. And I'll give you my best Academy story. I don't think I've ever told this on TV. I've just, I've certainly told it in a couple of bars. But <laughs> we had a, we had a movie called The Crying Game, because this is a bar story. Mm-hmm. Had a movie called The Crying Game. Neil Jordan was the director. And, um, you know, it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. And Tavis, people tell me exactly what you said. Well, you're definitely going to win something tonight. You know, the movie was wildly successful. It was a $4 million movie, grossed like $60 million in the United States. Incredible night. Neil Jordan and I and Steve Willie, the producer, walk into the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion where the Oscars were that night. Neil Jordan's Irish. She says to me, Harvey, I can feel it. I can feel it. I can feel it. We're going to win them all tonight. I tell you, we're going to win them all. I just have that great feeling. And I said, wow, that's cool, Neil. Wow, that would be so exciting. So we took our seats, and we were competing against Clint Eastwood that year, and he had made The Unforgiven. We took our seats. Nobody noticed. Clint Eastwood walked into the theater, and they gave him a standing ovation (laughs) for taking his seat, you know, for sitting. You know what I mean? I said, Neil, they just gave Clint Eastwood a standing ovation for sitting down. How in the hell do you think we're going to win anything? First nomination comes up, Unforgiven Crying Game, the award that we were favored to win. We lose, and then we lose again. 
And I said, Neil, I will not be spending the rest of the night in my seat. I will meet you in the bar. <laughs> and it was the biggest shellacking of all time. Clint Eastwood not only won the Oscar that night, he won the seats, the cars, you know, people's wallets. I mean, it was just the biggest, most impossible. And Neil Jordan, don't worry, I've got a feeling, the luck of the Irish. Uh, yeah, okay. So much for predictions.